off my feet You erased my history You took all of me and filled it up with you Hello, this is Let's Talk About It And I am Patricia McLean, the host And founder and president of Finding Our Voices a nonprofit organization committed to breaking the silence of intimate partner abuse, town by town, conversation by conversation, all over Maine. The five previous episodes of this show have been my conversations with survivors, from one to five women. I'm going to do something different today. I'm going to catch you up with some of the women who are on the 27 huge Let's Talk About It downtown window banners touring the state that also feature the hotline phone number for the local domestic abuse agency. Last week, the banners went up on MDI and Eastport, and very soon they are coming to the Blue Hill Peninsula, four towns in Penobscot County, including Millinocket and Dover-Foxcroft, and back to the mid-coast. Finding Our Voices launched on Valentine's Day 2019 with an exhibit at the Camden Public Library my photo portraits of 14 survivors, plus audio of their stories, accessible by cell phone. You can still listen to these stories on the findingourvoices.net website, but it is worthwhile to listen to them here as well, because these women have been through what no one should go through. They were silent for a long time, and they have a lot to say. If there are no ears to hear, our voices don't go far. So thank you for listening. And now, let's talk about it. This is Johnny. Johnny chose the Brewer Public Library for her portrait because it is her favorite place to relax. The building used to be a police station, and the spot in which I photographed her was where police photographed her smashed face 20 years ago. I'm from Maine, obviously, you can tell by my accent. Um, And he, you know, he went to prep school. He had went to Exeter High School in New Hampshire. And then he went away to uh, college at BU. And um, so I just felt like he was very sort of wise and worldly. And and I felt very safe around him. Well, I remember the first time very clearly. Um, We were on an old country road. That's what we would do. We would, you know, drive around in the country and just go on long drives and talk and chat and He was angry about um, something. I remember him pulling my hair, um, yelling, calling me names, and I thought, I'm just going to put my head on his lap. And I heard him say, I could burn you with a cigarette and you wouldn't know it. And I just sat really still, not thinking that he would actually burn me with a cigarette, but he ended up um, putting the, the cherry of his cigarette on my neck. I think I called the police on him on three separate occasions. I felt like, you know, if I were to just love him enough, then he wouldn't want to hurt me because I knew that he could not hurt me if he wanted to because there are plenty of days where he wasn't calling me names, where he wasn't hitting me, um, strangling me, you know. So I knew that he could be that person that I fell in love with. We had went out and uh, we got back to my apartment. I could tell just by the way he looked or sounded um, that he was going to become angry and start to abuse me in some way or another. I remember I picked up my landline 
And I called a friend of mine and I just said, you know, will you come get me? I'm afraid he's going to hit me. And so we picked the telephone receiver up and just started bashing me, you know, in the head and in the face. And, and so he had split my, my, um, eyebrow open. So I had blood everywhere. Finally, he allowed me to call a friend. And so, um, I'll never forget this. She came, came in, saw my face, saw Bill, um, and said, okay, Johnny, are you ready to go? And I said, I am. And I kissed him on my way out the door and said, I love you. I'll be back. I, I felt like at that point that I had done something wrong. Um, I felt a lot of compassion for him. Like I understand why he got angry, why he got upset. He was afraid he would be arrested. I lost hope that he was going to change. And that is the number one reason that I left. You know, I'll never forget how painful it was to leave Bill. Um, I broke free from his abuse, but in the process, I lost all the good things about our relationship. You know, I don't have the dreams and the nightmares that I had for a long time. And when I say a long time, I mean years. I will never forget the fear that I had for so long um, when I was with him, and even more so when I was no longer with him, how exhausted I was. Um, and part of me feels like if he knew that, I think he'd feel satisfied. You know, one of the last things that he said to me was, um, every time you look in the mirror, you're going to remember me because you're going to see that scar. Here is Maggie, who is from the Ellsworth area. There's, there's a lot. Um, I met him when I was 16. I was in a really, really bad place in my life. He was a rebel. He would get upset when I would go with my mom to visit my grandmother who lived in Lubeck. He just didn't like that I was gone so long. I was 92 pounds when we first met. He would tell me that if I lost weight that, you know, I would be prettier. I was at a point where I thought I needed to leave. And then two days later, I found out that I was pregnant. It got worse. I remember there was one day I was standing on a chair to get something out of the top cupboard, and he kicked the chair, and I fell. I was just scared. It just... Oh, why did you do that? The emotional abuse went on for years. And then he started to <clears throat> escalate into animals throwing a rock one day and laughing because he had hit the cat in the head. The cat had a seizure and he thought it was funny. He brought home a dog one day and he wanted to test out his new rifle. <clears throat> I thought he was just going to go out to target practice or something. I went out and my dog was gone. He was not on the in his house or on his chain. And I went down back behind the house to see where he was. and My dog was, was lying in a I, I don't even know what you call it. It was a bunch of ferns. He was lying there, and he was whining. He was a big dog. He had a very fluffy coat, and it didn't kill him right away. So he went back inside and took his shotgun. And I remember him telling me, drag the, drag the dog out. Get him out of the bushes. And I, I didn't know what else to do. I was so scared. I remember pulling the dog out. And he was, he was whining. And he, he shot the dog. After that, I kept thinking, how am I going to get away from this? And I, um, I was 23 miles from anywhere. We, 
had a phone. At this point, I was so ashamed. I was just, how did I get here? How did I let it get to this point? And my father's in law enforcement, so it's really, there's so much shame. My brother-in-law was a state trooper. My other brother-in-law was for the sheriff's department, worked for the sheriff's department here in Hancock County. He bought a AR-15, <clears throat> and I remember him coming out one day with two bullets, and we did, he said, set one down, and he said, Maggie, and he had another one, set it down, and said, Darren, and that's all he said. And they were left sitting on my mantle. I didn't dare touch them, and the only, he only moved them because my dad had come to visit one day and asked, why are there bullets sitting on the mantle? He had come home from work, and I got my nose pierced. I kind of regretted getting my nose pierced. I like I felt like I was too old for it. I was only 22 at the time, but I felt like I was just too old for it. He had thrown my laptop on the floor, and my son was sitting on it, pounding on the keys. And I asked, what, what are you doing? Why is my computer on the floor? And he told me I was a stupid cunt, and that he was going to destroy me. He turned around and just, he slapped me. And I remember my son just looking at me, so scared. Look on his face. Something just kind of, I guess you could say it clicked in my brain. Like just, I need to get out of here. And he had gone into the bedroom and he got his 9mm handgun. And he stood in the hallway holding my son, holding the gun behind him. He didn't say anything, and he walked back to the bedroom, and he closed the door, and I just, I, I didn't know what to do. Do I go open the door? What if, is he going to kill my baby? I opened the door, and I said, I need to go do laundry. Can I take Darren with me? And he was sitting on the bed with Darren with the handgun beside him. I took Darren, and I, I just closed the door. I just remember grabbing things and throwing them in bags. He was charged with domestic violence assault. Um, but because I only reported that one incident, there was no, he had two days in jail for that. He was supposed to take anger management and didn't, um, there really was no accountability. I didn't report all the other things because I didn't think anything would happen. I didn't think anybody would ever believe me. They did allow contact. The judge said there was no reason, and even though... During the hearing for the protection from abuse order, he talked about how he had taken his gun and held it to the dog's head and shot the dog's brains out. They didn't feel there was any any danger to Darren. I started school to become a victim witness advocate because I wanted to work with survivors of domestic violence. My life has changed so much since then. I have a, a five-year diary, and you're supposed to write in it every day. And I don't. Out of five years, that is the only thing, well, ten years, actually, that I've written in that in that diary was just, I got the job. When I went through everything, I went by Margaret. That was what everybody called me. Now I go by Maggie because Margaret's a different person. Maggie's who I am now. This is Millie, who I interviewed at the Wyndham Prison when she was in her last two years of a sentence on drug charges. She has been a pimp, and she has been sex trafficked. The quote on her window banner is about her abusive boyfriend at 15 and reads, 
Like pimps, they make you think they will take care of you. I believe it started in my home when I was a child. It started with my father. It started with, like, the confusion, the mind games, just dumb stuff. You're always walking on eggshells, always worried about what his mood's going to be, what his temper's going to be, living around, revolving around him pretty much. When I was real, real young, grabbing me by the face and lifting me off my feet and fucking screaming, is he spitting in my face? Why'd you do it? Why'd you do it? Like stupid shit. Like ride my bike like a little bit further than I was supposed to or something. Like, I don't know why I did that. I'm a kid. Why do we do anything? Just because we want to or because we can or because we don't even realize we're doing it. I don't know. But after he would have those uh, moments, he would like, you know, let's go coat shopping or... All right, guys, let's go out for let's go out to dinner. But it still wasn't any fun because I'm I'm still sitting there like, okay, when when's he gonna freak out? I was scared. I don't blame the way that I ended up on my childhood, but I know that that didn't start me off with a very good foundation for me to build a life on. At um, 16, I was already kind of familiar with that kind of relationship with a man where he put his hands on me, would um, be controlling. And he came up to me out, the, out of the blue and was like, don't be shy, give me your number. And I really liked his like confident approach. Everything was peachy at first. Once he realized that I was in a situation where I couldn't go home, that's when things really turned around. Just like with whores and pimps you know, with prostitution. That's the object of the game, is you want you want to find girls that are runaways, girls that can't go home, girls that are really strung out, you know, and the first thing you want to do is you want to separate them from everybody. You're going to be there for them, you got them, like you'll take care of them. And he made me feel like that at first. So we kind of like bonded, and then he totally changed. Johnny, we started doing drugs together and stuff, and I, that's where, okay, yeah, can have sex with dealers and get more drugs. Years later, um, I mean, found myself, like, walking the streets of Lewiston, which was ridiculous, and... Then um, I got myself in a situation where some money was owed and people were very upset and I ended up getting snatched up off the sidewalk and taken to Lynn Mass and um, I was kept for about a month and by people that, I mean, beat the out of me, raped me, made me have threesomes, it was just, ugh. it was disgusting, um, burnt me, like, if I can't find a date, if I can't get a date, like, making me walk up to everybody in 7-Eleven parking lot and offer them f***ing sex, even if their wife's right there, they don't care, I better ask, that's humiliating, um, and then, um, I got them to let me go on a date by myself, and I ran as fast as I could, I booked it. And after that, um, after seeing how much money they was making off me, I just, it became like a way of life. I've lived a crazy life. I've been out on the streets for years. 
I mean, I'm doing things in here. I'm, you know, taking voluntarily taking classes, reading, self-help books. I'm getting to know myself a lot better. I'm using this time wisely. I just gave birth to a beautiful little boy in here. That, I don't wish that on my worst enemy. There's nothing, nothing that could ever compare to giving birth to a child and spending three days with him and then having to come back to prison empty-handed and be locked in a cell and deal with those emotions. Like, there's nothing that can compare to that. That changes you as a person. I'm a pretty tough chick. And that, that really got to me. This is Amber from the Machias area, who said she was always expecting to see her abuser in the jail where she works. She escaped from him when she was in her early 20s, and since then, at least three women have filed protection from abuse orders against him. So my name is uh, Amber Hatch. I'm 28 years old. I'm a corrections officer, and I met him approximately in 2011. He... <laughs> He looked like a down easter. He was, you know, he would wear the baggy, you know, over large shirt, the clam boots. You know, he was he was attractive. I, I don't really know how to explain it, but he was I, you know, honestly, it's like it's like an electric current. Uh it's like you, you know, you touch somebody like knee to knee and it just feels like that spark. He was so confident, just so nice and he just made me feel so great. I uh, was immediately just super attracted to him in in every way. Like, it didn't matter that he lived in a, basically a barn. It didn't matter that he wasn't making a lot of money. It didn't matter that he had a record. None of that mattered. What kind of record did he have? He had a previous domestic charge, but I'd met the girl. She didn't appear to be a very reputable person to me at the time. And then I decided to have a drink with an older man. I mean, this man was like 70 years old, but he was a veteran. So we were talking about um, military service. And when I got back, he freaked out and he smacked me in the face. I mean, I cried, he cried, and he was like, I've never done that before. And of course, I believed him. It's weird. It's like you, you don't believe them, but... You do at the same time because you want to. You, your brain tells you to believe them because otherwise the alternative... I mean, at that point, you're already invested. He said that he loved me so much, and I said, yeah, nothing says love like murder-suicide. We, you know, we both knew it. Everybody knew it. Everybody in town knew it. Oh, yeah, that, he, that he's going to eventually do something like that. So I'd left him a couple times, and there was always reason to go back. He had taken pictures of me, like fairly naked pictures of me, and uh, he posted them on Facebook to get me to go back. He would either stalk me or he would call my mom and she would say, oh, he, you know, he really loves you. We moved back to my parents' trailer and I started working at McDonald's again. From McDonald's to my house is about three miles. He was holding my hand, forcing me to go with him. And he was squeezing it so hard, I was pretty sure that he was going to break my hand. And probably about every five minutes, he would start choking me. But um, eventually, I actually ended up kind of wiggling away from him. And I thought that I would be able to run. I, I knew it was going to end bad, so I stopped um, right at the bridge. I took a look at that bridge. 
I can't swim. Basically, it was one of those things where I was like, do I want him to do it or do I want to do it? And I said, no, get through tonight and tomorrow we'll do something different. And this was probably four months into our relationship. Yep. I decided that enough was enough. I wasn't going to let this cycle repeat itself all the time. It wasn't going to be, you know, it wasn't going to be my, my parents. It wasn't going to be another man. It was, you know, you need to find something better for yourself so that you can be a good parent to your child. It took me a week and a half to get everything that I needed in order to move out of Washington County. I was months late on my truck payment. I was praying that I wasn't going to get pulled over. Um, and I was most definitely homeless, but I did what I needed to do to get to a better place. Here is Sydney, a college student from Camden, who was 18 when we spoke last year. I met him in high school. I had recently been broken up with by um, a girl that I was dating, and I was feeling not so great about myself. I had quite a few platonic male friends. He pretty quickly got really uncomfortable with it. He would text me a lot when I was with them, saying that it was making him uncomfortable and that I probably shouldn't be spending time with them alone. And um, even though at first it didn't seem like it was a problem to me, it started to seem to me like it was a problem as soon as he started to tell me that it was a problem. And I guess a couple months into our relationship, I had gone on a field trip for school and there was a dance with students from other schools and for a while I was sort of dancing near this one guy from another school. I kind of started to think about what he might think of that and I started to feel really guilty about it and so I texted him and I was like just so you know like I sort of danced with this guy on this field trip and I was like I'm you know if I hope it's not a big deal like I really didn't have any bad intentions but like if you have a problem with it like we can talk about it. Um, and I'm sorry, and like, I won't do it again. And he called me and he got really mad. He hung up on me and I really felt like I had done this really horrible, awful thing. And one of the biggest negative components of our relationship was the sexual aspect. And he would ask me to have sex and I would say, I'm not, I don't really feel like doing it right now. Um, and he would do a lot of, you know, um, if you don't want to have sex with me, you don't, you don't love me, you're punishing me, you're mad at me. Um, you don't think I'm attractive. If you want me to, like, date you and be faithful to you, like, you should have sex with me. Like, so, you know, I would say no, and 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 then I would say yes. Physically, it would oftentimes be pretty uncomfortable, sometimes painful, and I felt very, very pressured into having sex in the first place and, and then continuing to have this uncomfortable kind of painful sex with him. I spent a lot of my time that I probably could have been focusing on school or on other relationships, friendships, or on myself, focusing on him and his various problems with his family and his yada yada. He actually broke up with me. I cried and cried and cried and I was like really, really upset for like 27, 30 hours and then I was fine. This group called New Hope for Women um, 
came to my school and did a presentation on relationship and domestic abuse. I guess I just figured that relationship abuse and domestic violence was for like married people and domestic partnerships where you live with somebody or maybe you have kids or financially there's some reason you can't leave and I assumed it would look more like outright physical beatings and rapes and threats and stalking and things like that. I I didn't understand, I guess, how subtle it could be. Here's Christine, who owns the wonderful framing store in Camden and who is the mother of one of Sydney's best friends. I wish I had known that a different life was possible and to not stay in those you know, abusive relationships. I wish I knew that I deserved better before now. I didn't, I didn't learn that until I was 55. I moved to Maine at 23. I met someone named Steve who uh, I found out was beating my dog at night. Yeah. Oh, I got engaged to a wealthy family's son. He said, tell me you love me, and I didn't say anything. And then he kicked me in the spine, kicked me, kicked me, kicked me out of bed. So when I started to leave the bedroom, he got up and he beat me. And, I, and he beat me all the way down the hallway until I locked myself in the bathroom. I stayed in the bathroom all night. In the morning before school, he knocked on the bathroom door and he said, see you later, honey, have a good day. Shortly after that is when I met Sophia's birth father. And he just lied about everything. Like there wasn't a thing that came out of his mouth that wasn't a lie. Right after she was born, he sued me for custody of her. And almost got it, except that I had had a videotape of him and he was with her when she was about three months old and he was touching her inappropriately and saying inappropriate things. And that was actually what wound up going into court like a year, over a year later that they had them, the judge took his parental rights away. And so then 12 years later, I found myself in the worst abusive relationship of all with Ed. I was in um, like a, an online divorce chat group support kind of a thing, you know, and he was in there. And so he, we commiserated about our marriages falling apart. Of course, because he was in a divorce chat group, I thought he was divorced, but he wasn't. He never physically assaulted me, but, but he tortured me psychologically. I was so unstable and I started drinking. I started drinking so much. I was ridiculous because I was unhappy in the relationship, but I didn't want to get out of the relationship because I was so dependent on the relationship. I think I just wanted to know that somebody cared about me and he kept saying he cared about me. My last relationship was about four years with um, a man who has severe PTSD. But after so many years of that, I realized that that's not the life I want. I don't want to be off in a corner somewhere with my PTSD and your PTSD. So I ended that relationship. All, all in that year, I was thinking, I'm okay. You know, I'm okay by myself. I'm okay without a man. I'm okay with just my kids. I adore my children. I think it's going to be fine. And then, of course, I met Peter. Well, he talks to me all the time. You know, I, I have all these men that I've been with. I, I never really had 
conversations with them. They were always talking at me or about me. No one else has ever listened. You know, they, one of the things I remember the most about my mother is I never had her attention, ever. I mean, she would be right in front of me and I'm talking to her and I could tell that she wasn't listening. She was preoccupied with whatever guy or thing was going on in her life. She just got into one catastrophe after another. I mean, just horribly abusive relationships that, that moved right in with us too. They, you know, and like, no time. These guys were living in our house and very abusive to her and to us. Maybe it's because I wanted to prove to myself that I wasn't going to carry on the legacy of abuse. I wanted to have children to kind of redo that whole chapter of my life with, you know, to, to kind of start over and, and how it should be. Listening to whatever they wanted to talk about. You know, Lily tells me about her. She'll wake up in the morning and want to tell me about one of her dreams and it can go on for three hours and I won't interrupt her because I know what that feels like. You know, and uh, and, and of course, you're, you've got stuff to do and you're a mom and you want to say, okay, can we wrap this up? I'm like, I'm not going to do it. I'm like, and, and then what happened? <laughs> you know, and then what happened? You are listening to Let's Talk About It. One of the ways our non-profit organization, Finding Our Voices, is breaking the silence of intimate partner abuse all over Maine. I am Patricia McLean, host of this radio show and the founder and president of Finding Our Voices. Now let's return to some of the women who are on the four-foot by two-foot banners touring downtown windows for a month at a time all over Maine. Here is Olivia, a nurse who lives on Vinyl Haven. We moved in really quickly together. Being a nurse, I had somebody to share, you know, some of my experiences with because he was a paramedic firefighter or he was an EMT firefighter. It was nice. He drove everywhere. I didn't have to worry about driving. He paid for the rent. I would catch him in small little lies and that didn't even make sense to, of things to lie about. We went out one night in Portland, and I remember coming back, and I was upset. Um, he had made me really uncomfortable. He was flirtatious. He ended up shoving me in the bedroom with both of his hands hard enough to fall back onto the bed. I was kind of in shock, and I was I think I just made excuses because we were both we had both been drinking, and I had upset him, and it was my my fault. You know, it wasn't all bad. Some some days it was really, we had a lot of fun together. We laughed a lot, but then it kind of, the bad day, the good days started fading and there was more bad days than good. We were having intercourse and I asked him to stop because it started to hurt and he didn't. And he just kept going and I was crying with my face down in the pillow and begging him to stop and he didn't. And at the end, he said, I said, why didn't you stop? Why did you do that? It hurt. And he, I, I, he looked right at me and said, I hate you. That was a hate. I never pictured myself in a relationship like that. He was very big into working out. Um, he made me feel like I needed to go to the gym every day. Um, there were days that I went twice a day. I wasn't eating right. I was skin and bones. We had gone on vacation on a cruise. The whole week he was awful to me. We got arguing arguing in our cabin and he ended up getting me on the ground, face down. He was a big guy. Um, he had his hand around my 
um, it was kind of like wrapped around my face and my neck and it was, my head was turned to the side and I could not breathe, but I was able to just start screaming. I just was like, help, help, help. And not long after, maybe a minute or two after I heard security pounding on the door and he sat on the bed and he was rocking back and forth and he goes, live, live. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I love you. I love you so much. I'm sorry. Tell them everything's fine. And I do remember saying to him, you don't do this to somebody you love. The punching in the face was bad and the ripping my clothes and my breaking my phone and pushing me and grabbing me, but that was probably the scariest thing I've ever experienced. I continued on the rest of the cruise and it was kind of one of those things where it was like, I'm gonna walk on eggshells around him and, and make sure that we don't fight anymore and and try and just get off this boat alive. My parents begged me not to go on that cruise. And I went. And I remember when I got back, they said, we thought you we were never going to come back. I still didn't leave. I still stayed. Because I kept thinking, you know, oh, this, this will get, things are going to get better. Things are going to get better when the kids come. Like, he's going to change. And never, never did. His mother had put a comment, had commented on a Facebook post of mine. He saw it and it set him off and he said, delete that comment, delete the whole post. Uh, or if you don't, I'm going to, I'm going to take the credit card. I'm going to take my car that you, that your name's on. I didn't. And I said, no, I'm not going to. Um, he was like, well then get the f out. And I said, okay. And I called my parents and I said, I'm leaving. I'm done. We got my stuff the next morning and we drove back up to Maine. I stayed at my aunt and uncle's in Rockland and then we got on the boat the next day. And I just, <laughs> the sense of relief, the weight I felt lifted off my shoulders. It was always um, uh, what I thought was colicky. And then I moved home. All of a sudden they started sleeping better. It was almost like they were two just different kids. It's not the physical abuse I'm getting, it's the financial and the you know, emotional. I still feel like I'm just being walked all over sometimes. This is Judy, an interior designer from Camden. Our girls were in school together growing up, and after my divorce, I rented a very stylish apartment from her. My father was a chef, a really, really fabulous chef. Um, he worked for some movie stars in Idolapino and came to my house one night and sang to me. And he was into opera and fine food and I just remember him being very creative and sort of romantic. He would bake cakes for my teachers and he'd ask me what I wanted and like bake them a German chocolate cake and bring it to school, this big, beautiful, fancy thing. And My mother graduated top in her class and got a scholarship to college uh, back then. You know, we thought my mother was Edith Bunker. We thought she was just the ditziest person on earth. We always thought she was, you know, like pretty fat and ugly. And then we saw these pictures of her when she was young. It's like, oh my God, who's this beauty queen? I know that he was in and out of work and that that was a big issue for the marriage. When he drank, he was very abusive to my mother. And he always called her a whore. And um, be jealous and act like she'd been out the whole time he was gone with another man or something. And she was trying to feed her four kids, you know, on her $800 a month salary. 
I remember her coming to um, the Halloween party at school, so six-ish after she got off work, and she had this big, huge purple sort of bandage over her nose because he had broken her nose. He came home and said, where is she? I'm going to kill her. And he got a butcher knife. She took off and he followed her and it was almost like a procession because he, what I remember, whether this is true or not, she, she was here, he was, let's say, 10 feet behind her and then there was my brother and then me and I'm very young at this time. My brother, uh, George, would say, go like in this store and call the police or ask them if you can use their phone because I'm certain we had no money. And I remember calling the police and saying, you have to come out right now. My father's following my mother with a butcher knife and he says he's going to kill her. And I remember the police saying, um, are they uh, legally separated? And I remember saying, no and them saying, sorry, we can't help you. You're on your own. But he didn't kill her. But I did think he was going to and that I was going to watch it. And we finally said, you know, why don't you leave him? And she said, because I love him. My oldest brother was very emotionally disturbed, very angry. And George really withdrew. He's very, very um, introverted. Sandra and Earl were... Um, affected the most. You can either crash and burn or you can put blinders on and try to survive. I think that must be what I did. Now let's listen to Janine, a former TV news anchor from Casco. Back in late 2016, Janine was one of the first women to contact me when the main coalition to end domestic violence put my post out on their social media looking for survivors to publicly share their stories. Soon after this recording, Janine and her legislator, Jessica Fay, got a bill passed that makes financial abuse part of the definition of domestic abuse in Maine, with all sorts of ways to compensate victims of domestic abuse for money lost to boyfriends and husbands. My name is Janine Oren. I'm 62 years old. I'm a retired journalist, and I live in Casco, Maine. He was totally charming, educated, handsome, a talented executive. I was 28 when I met him. I was working as a television anchor in Ohio, and we married a year later. When we got back from our honeymoon, I realized he'd lied to me about a number of things, mostly, though, about money. Years later, in 2002, I was in a terrible car accident that wasn't my fault. I ruptured three discs in my back, one in my neck, two in my lower back. I had a head injury that complicated everything. I was losing my vision, and I was in a rehabilitation clinic for a total of almost nine months. But all he could think about was the money. He told me to stop going to rehab because he said it wasn't cost efficient. But he had a plan. He told me that the two of us were going to sue the other driver for millions of dollars and he was going to invest it for me. I knew right then and there that he was a vampire. He assaulted me that night. It was bad. He threatened to kill me. I didn't call 911. I should have. I filed for divorce, though. 
One day, while the divorce was pending, he came to the house to pick up the boys for a scheduled visit, and somehow he'd gotten into the house and got his shotgun. By the time I saw him, he was standing outside in the garden with the shotgun at his side, and he was glaring at me through the window. And then the stalking began. I got a protection from abuse order, which he violated a few weeks later. He spent the night in jail on criminal charges, but you know what? He never stalked me or ever even came near me again, ever. Incarceration stopped it. However, that's when the financial abuse began. He stopped paying child support and alimony only a few months after our divorce was finalized. This would be his new weapon of choice, financial abuse, which you don't go to jail for. Those four boxes you see represent the tens of thousands of dollars I spent on legal fees to try and enforce my court orders for child support and alimony. He would agree to pay it in court, but he never did. What he did do was move through three states hiding from me and the court. I finally found him years later in Florida and took him to court there. There are still two warrants out for his arrest here in the state of Maine for contempt of court. What we know now is that 98% of women who are victims of actual physical domestic violence were also victims of financial abuse prior to their first physical assault. So I'm working right now to help write new laws in the state of Maine to make financial abuse a criminal offense. I've testified before the Judiciary Committee and helped secure a $50,000 grant to study the impact of financial abuse on victims of domestic violence here in Maine. This is Becca. Becca is the daughter of my best friend, Carol, who died of a brain tumor. At the same time that Becca was in the abusive relationship she talks about here, her mother, Carol, was also in an abusive relationship while she was dying. He was a gentleman. He pulled a chair out. He opened doors. Um, he paid for dinner, everything. He was, he was a really sweet, nice guy. Girls had messaged me on Facebook. One girl said that she had been thrown into a car by him and punched in the face. In that first year, I didn't really believe that because he wasn't like that with me. It wasn't until we moved to Denver and I was away from everyone I knew that things took a turn for the worse. He didn't like my friends and I thought, oh, he just really likes me. <laughs> he wants to hang out with me instead of them. It started when he was drunk and he threw a beer bottle at my head and it missed my head and went into the wall. And then in the morning when he was sober, he apologized and patched the wall up. Um, actually, I patched the wall up. And then after that, it started with little um, like slaps here and there, um, pinching, things like that. And then when he started getting drunk, he started punching me in the stomach. There's some days that were really good days and you have fun with that person and then they apologize and nothing happens for two weeks and they said that they were sorry and you think that everything's going to be okay and then it happens again. My mom had talked to me about it and she's like, never let yourself be in that situation. Don't ever let a man put you down. Um, but when it happens so gradually, you don't even realize you're in that situation until you're like, oh shit. <laughs> My mom was really sick and... Um, I came home after she had had brain surgery and I had to 
be here and stay for a month to take care of her. And while I was here, he didn't want me to leave the house. He said I was going back for a reason and I wasn't allowed to see any of my friends. Um, he would call me at any point and say, take a picture of where you are right now and send it to me. So I know exactly where you are. I was pissed off and really frustrated with the situation, but it was more just, I didn't want him to be angry. I didn't want to have to have a fight about it. Um, so it was easier just to do what he asked. Growing up, I, I left home and I um, went sailing and I traveled around the world as a chef and as a nanny. It was really weird having somebody tell me what to do, like, all the time. I stopped smiling. I had my head down all the time looking at the ground. It'd be like somebody coming in through the door at a restaurant. Why are you looking up? Why are you looking at that person? I just became much more serious. And we got a dog together and he started being abusive towards the dog. That's when I really realized that this isn't supposed to be happening. I actually one night grabbed a kitchen knife when he was hitting me and put it to his throat. And I said, if you ever touch me again, I'm going to leave you. It was like a few days later, he grabbed me and threw me up against a wall and choked me and punched me in the stomach. And the next morning I dropped him off at work. I went home, packed up everything I could fit into our mutual car, put the dog in the front seat and drove away. Here is Autumn, a mother of two boys from the Lewiston area. When it's your mother that's being abusive, you make as many excuses in your head as possible. Like maybe it was something I did, maybe it was just if I was better at school or if I was smarter or prettier or... You just make a million excuses for her. Because you love her. My first real boyfriend, he was a real bad control freak. He hit me with his car a couple times. He would use his car as a weapon. Oh, well, the guy directly after that. I just remember him choking me in front of my son. Daniel, I was with him for about a year and a half. He cut up my clothing. He dictated who, what, where would I talk to them. Would kick my ass if I didn't, you know, just not. When I say kick my ass, I don't mean like just like slap you. I mean beat the out of you. I dated a boy named Ramiro from Mexico in front of a bunch of people at a party grabbed me by the hair of my head and ripped me to the ground and pretty much body slammed me and then choked, was choking me into the point of I just felt like I was going into outer space. They claim you as property pretty quickly and for a, a lot of women that, are, that I've met that are abused, that sort of attention and somebody wanting them to the point of calling them a possession is, it's attractive. I know that he is an abuser, but I still find those things attractive, and I still enjoy those parts of him, and I still miss him. It's the most insane thing. To love somebody that abuses you is crazy. Jeremy was the worst, because it stays calm, but the torture abuse that he does that makes you think that you're crazy. He was, he was, um into erotic asphyxiation, but I was pregnant and told him, you know, that's you know, that's one thing when I'm not pregnant, but you know, I could you could harm the baby when you do this, and yeah, every time we have sex, he would still like to choke and be in control. I'm not sure what kind of sick shit, you know, like that's, I'm fucking pregnant. 
I don't have any family to run to because the whole time I'm with the guy while I'm pregnant, he's telling me how bad my brothers are for me and how bad my friends are for me. So I'm alienating people this whole time, too. You really are completely and totally dependent on them like a newborn child. The phone call that you have to make to tell somebody <laughs> that I have nowhere to go. I've let myself be abused. I need help. When all you, everything in your head is screaming, just give him one more chance. From that moment, from the moment you make the call and get into the safe house, that's when you go over the hill and things start to get better. For me, it was hearing that I wasn't crazy. To hear that I was being abused, not having him know where I was. Being safe is huge. It's huge when you're laying there at nighttime and watching every car that goes by and being scared that it's him. And you got staff here that are just... In my 30 years of being in the system, jails, DHS custody, I have never seen more dedicated people than I have in this particular field. There, there is hope, there's happiness. Just reach out for the help, it's there. You know, you're a survivor. You can live alone happily, period. I'm going to end this episode now with my own story. So, Patricia, a photojournalist and the founder-president of Finding Our Voices. A boyfriend from the 1980s got in touch. Ferociously independent is how he remembered me. So how does a ferociously independent woman end up married for 29 years to a man who controlled me to the degree that if I was on my property photographing a family and he yelled at me to go to the store for him, I would leave my clients in the middle of the photo session and get in the car and drive to the store. When I met him, I had just turned 27. I was in my dream job of reporter on a daily newspaper, living in my dream city of San Francisco. I was working 60 hours a week for $11,000 a year. He was 41, a rich and famous poet and singer. Hours after we met, he told me he loved me and that he wanted to buy me a new car. One month after we met, he asked me to move back east with him. The day I sold my car, gave up my apartment, and quit my job is when I saw his temper for the first time. Five months after we met, we were married. I lived only a seven-hour drive from my family in Montreal, but he gave me so much grief for just mentioning a visit that I very rarely saw them. He had no friends and was estranged from everyone in his family, so it was just the two of us. Most of the time, he was Peter Pan, fun, funny, and free. But about once a month, he got into an anti-pat phase. He would snap at me for days, then start a fight over nothing. It was always something I said to defend myself that would ramp up the fight. Sometimes a switch would flip, and there was no reaching him and no turning back. He turned into something out of the exorcist. He spewed out horrific words and phrases, pulled my hair, poked, shoved, punched, and kicked me. Sometimes he raped me. Then he would freeze me out, which was just as bad. 
The storm would last for days. Then I had back the man who was my soulmate and who wrote in beautiful handwriting he learned from his grandmother that he would treat me like a flower and a baby. He did not apologize. We did not acknowledge the Jekyll and Hyde transformation or the ugly bruises all over my body. But when he said, don't get me started, we both knew what he meant. In 1990, our daughter was born. After two days of labor and a cesarean, he came to my hospital bedside, not with flowers, but with a document he said I had to sign or he would leave me. It reinforced a prenuptial agreement that gave me basically nothing if we divorced. We moved into a castle in the air in Camden. I went to see a lawyer with my baby in my arms and told her I needed to leave my husband because he was beating me up. She took out divorce papers. My baby started crying so loudly it was impossible to communicate, so I told her I would come back, but I was afraid to go back. Loyalty was the biggest thing with my husband, and telling anyone, and especially a lawyer, about what was going on behind our closed doors was the height of disloyalty. In 1994, I was setting the Thanksgiving dinner table, and he made a suggestion. I said I already had it figured out. That set him off. He ended up squeezing my head between the palms of his hands like it was in a vice and strangling me. I was somehow able to call 911. When the police came, I told them it was nothing and begged them not to arrest him because of the damage it would do to his career. There was no arrest. He told me later he told the police I had attacked him and they had almost arrested me. After that, I thought with him being the town celebrity, he would always be believed over me. He never forgave me for making that 911 call. Why did I stay for another 25 years? He put me down so much, stupid, dummy, idiot, that I didn't think I could make it on my own. Our life together was 100% about him and his career, so I did not know what I would do with myself if I was on my own. He regularly reminded me I would have nothing if I left. He told me he would kill me if I left. Over and over again, I watched him sadistically plot with lawyers to crush people who had loved him and who had helped him in his career, and I knew this would be turned full force on me. So long as we were together, I could mitigate his behavior to our two children, and I loved him. So as my friend Judy Godwin said about life with an abusive father, I put blinders on and did everything I could to keep the peace and survive. On Valentine's Day 2015, I discovered that at 69 years old, he was having an affair with a 19-year-old girl. All that year, he lied, and I tried to leave him. As soon as I checked into a hotel room, my phone would start dinging with nonstop texts and voicemails, alternately sweet-talking and threatening, that would pull me back before daybreak. In mid-December, I found out he had given her an engagement ring, and I moved to our house in Castine. He barraged me with more than 150 messages a day. He swore his love for me. He threatened to blow everything up, to make my life hell, to kill himself and others, to further emotionally hurt our daughter. I agreed to a path of reconciliation. On January 18th, I stopped in at the house, and when I saw evidence he was still involved with her, I told him the path to reconciliation was off. He sobbed and pleaded. When I would not say I was coming to him, back to him now, the switch flipped. He jerked my chin to force me to look into his beady black eyes while he told me how much he wanted to strangle me. He crushed my skull with the palms of his hands. 
Then he tethered me to the bed with a death grip to my wrist, shoved the landline out of my reach, and terrorized me on our bed for at least three hours. When his grip loosened for a second, I dashed off the bed, grabbed my cell phone that was charging in the wall, and ran into the bathroom, him in hot pursuit. I pushed the lock over in the nick of time. He shoved against the door, and I heard it splinter. He broke through. When he was facing me, the voice of the 911 operator was on the line, and he looked at me with puppy dog eyes. I told the operator everything was okay. Then I told the two police officers who came to the door the same thing and begged them not to arrest him. When I saw him at the bottom of the stairs talking to a police officer, I flashed back to when he told police I was a perpetrator, and I told the officer that he had hurt me. It was surreal to look down the long staircase and see my captor for so long in handcuffs. When I woke up, he was in jail, my head and body aching from his assault. I called our caretaker with a message for him. Did he want some chicken soup? I thought his arrest was my fault, and I knew he would be furious at me. In the months that followed, the torment and Jekyll and Hyde manipulation continued, even with his bail condition of no contact. But the physical separation and the support of my friends, family, community, and domestic abuse agencies gave me strength and insight, and five months after his arrest, I divorced him. The breaking of the silence is what set me free. I am convinced that if he had not been arrested, with the secret of his, his abuse clear now for everyone, including myself, to see, I would still be with him today, or dead. You have been listening to Let's Talk About It, featuring survivors of intimate partner abuse and hosted by me, Patricia McLean, founder and president of the Maine-based nonprofit organization Finding Our Voices. If you want to bring the downtown window banners featuring the women whose voices you have just been listening to to your downtown, if you have a comment or question for me or any of the women whose voices you just heard, if you want to make a donation to our nonprofit and help us break the silence of domestic abuse in Maine, contact me through our website, findingourvoices.net. And if what we are talking about sounds familiar, if you have an intimate partner who makes you afraid and controls what you say and do, if you have a friend or family member going through this and want to know what you can do to keep them safe, call your domestic abuse hotline. The victim advocates who take the calls believe you and understand it. In Maine, that number is 1-866-834-4357. The national hotline number is 1-800-799-7233. The Finding Our Voices Sisterhood of Survivors is at findingourvoices.net. And remember, love should feel good. I always thought that you were strong, but I was wrong, that's me. And I don't need your strength, I've got my own. You're a bully, you're just a bully.